The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio, originally broadcast in the first week of March 2021. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Samir Shaheen Hussein. It's often not appreciated by the beneficiaries of colonialism, meaning, among many other people around the world, white settler Canadians, how all-encompassing and world-shaping the colonial process has been. Practically every aspect of our social world has been, at one point or another, swept into active complicity in colonization, and in that process been profoundly shaped by colonization. This is true not only of state institutions, but pretty much everything else, too. And because of this profound and unresolved legacy shaping how our world works today, colonial harms and active complicity in them continue all around us. The show this week is specifically about medical colonialism, that is, the role that the medical establishment has played in genocide and colonization in Canada. Samir Shaheen Hussein is a pediatric emergency physician who practices in Montreal and an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University. He first started really thinking about medical colonialism because of his involvement in a campaign against one very specific aspect of it. For decades, it was the practice of the Quebec government agency Evacuation Ecomédicale du Québec to prevent caregivers from accompanying sick and injured children on emergency medical evacuation flights from northern and remote areas to urban hospitals. This was highly traumatic for both caregivers and children, medically unwise, and not consistent with best practices in pediatric emergency medicine. It had the most severe impacts on indigenous communities in the northern part of the province, not only because of the great physical distances involved, but because of the context of long colonial histories of a whole range of government authorities taking children from those communities. There had been a number of attempts over three decades by communities and medical practitioners to get this practice changed. It was only through the A Hand to Hold campaign, in which Shaheen Hussein played a central role, that the practice was ultimately ended in 2018. And he'll talk about that campaign a bit in this interview, but to hear about it in more detail, go to talkingradical.ca and search for the episode of the show featuring Shaheen Hussein from February 2019. After witnessing gross expressions of anti-Indigenous racism from prominent Quebec politicians in the course of the campaign, as well as ongoing denial of the existence of systemic racism, Shaheen Hussein decided to use this experience as the basis for writing a book. Fighting for a Hand to Hold, Confronting Medical Colonialism Against Indigenous Children in Canada was published in 2020 by McGill-Queen's University Press. The book includes a foreword by Cindy Blackstock, a Giddickson woman and renowned advocate for Indigenous children, and an afterword by well-known Mohawk activist Ellen Gabriel. The book begins from an account of the A Hand to Hold campaign and its victory against one aspect of present-day medical colonialism. It uses that as a jumping-off point to take up much larger questions. 
A key point made throughout the book is that, quote, healthcare inequalities follow the fault lines of societal injustices, end quote. So the book explores different ways of thinking about health that recognize how powerfully it is shaped by unjust social relations like capitalism, colonialism, and systemic racism. It also examines systemic problems within the culture of medical professions, and the core of the book takes up the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide and uses it as a framework to offer a very clear and accessible exploration of the history of medical colonialism in Canada including how it has contributed to aspects of colonization that meet every element of the original definition of genocide. The book concludes with a discussion of what kinds of change we need to deal with the ongoing realities of medical colonialism in the present, both broader social changes like the return of land to indigenous nations and space for their full self-determination, and specific changes within the medical system. I speak with Shaheen Hussein about the A Hand to Hold campaign, about the bigger picture of both past and present medical colonialism in Canada, and about his new book, Fighting for a Hand to Hold, Confronting Medical Colonialism Against Indigenous Children in Canada. My name is Samir Shaheen Hussain. I'm a pediatric emergency physician. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University. I wrote Fighting for a Hand to Hold, Confronting Medical Colonialism Against Indigenous Children in Canada. The motivation for the book was to look at the A Hand to Hold campaign that I was involved with along with others in 2018 and use that as a case study, basically, to talk about overarching issues tied to systemic racism in healthcare and medical colonialism in Canada more broadly as well. I come from a family that's socially aware. I've been engaged over the years, so that's the climate I grew up in. But I would say I got more politicized or radicalized in medical school, actually, through various events. And that's when I started organizing. One of the first groups I organized with was the Indigenous People Solidarity Movement. Along with others, I was one of the founding members. And initially, we were based out of McGill University. And then we went off campus. And our focus was doing Indigenous solidarity work from a clearly anti-colonial, anti-capitalist perspective. And over the years after that, I've also been involved in anti-police brutality organizing and migrant justice work. And actually only more recently, despite the fact that I, you know, I'm a pediatric emergency physician, have I been more actively um, and consistently involved in health justice work. Before we talk about the book and the broader issues of medical colonialism that it raises, lay out the basics of the A Hand to Hold campaign that you were so involved in. The campaign came about in January of 2018 in response to a long-standing practice or rule that was in place in the province of Quebec that prevented parents or caregivers from accompanying their children during emergency medevac airlift from rural and distant communities from urban areas. That was actually a practice that impacted all kids throughout Quebec who required medical emergency medevac airlift. But what our experience was at the Montreal Children's Hospital is that Indigenous kids, particularly you or Cree and Inuit from Nunavik in northern Quebec, were disproportionately impacted by this practice. There are many factors that explain why they were disproportionately impacted, and I won't go into that. So this rule or this practice had been in place since the 1980s when this government agency called EVAC, Evacuation Aeromédicale du Québec, came into existence. And for the last 
around 10 or 15 years prior to the end of the practice in 2018, the service where this rule was implemented systematically was on their challenger plane or their flying hospital. So meaning the kids who were the sickest were the ones who could not have a hand to hold during medical airlift. And so that's what the campaign sought to end. And the campaign, like I mentioned, was launched in January. And in late June, there was a formal announcement that was made issuing a new policy that would allow parents or caregiver accompaniment. That took a few months before it was implemented, but it was basically implemented as of October of 2018. And since then, it's very, very rare that a kid is going to be sent alone. So in that sense, it was a significant victory and one that many Indigenous communities, as well as other communities as well, had been calling for for decades, in fact. And again... I would encourage folks to go to TalkingRadical.ca and search for our interview from February 2019 for more details on the tactics the campaign used to win this victory and various other questions and issues surrounding it. And Samir, in the aftermath of this successful campaign, why did you decide to write a book about it? I had absolutely no intention whatsoever of working on a book when the campaign was happening. There are two key elements that pushed me to ultimately write the book. The first is, in June of 2018, which is basically the Quebec cousin, I guess, of Canadian Doctors for Medicare, they came out in support of the campaign. And that caused quite a bit of a stir in June. And it seems that there was a member of the public who was following the story. And this person saw Gaetan Barrette, who was the provincial health minister, at a community event. This is in the context of provincial elections happening or about to happen. And so this person approached the health minister and asked why this was an ongoing issue. And Barret's response, one of the things he said was that he could guarantee that in the next six months, there would be at least one person who would be refused from accompanying their kids because of being drugged or under the influence or agitated. And he said that this happens all the time. He didn't know that this person was actually recording him. Then that recording was leaked to the media, and it made headlines across the province and even across the country. Indigenous leaders, activists, politicians called for Barrett's resignation. That didn't happen. So the government in power stood by him. There wasn't really that much of a strong echo in the opposition party, or definitely not strong enough. And even in the public, there was clearly indignation, but there wasn't enough of an outcry to actually push him to resign. I I found that was very jarring, that this person can make anti-Indigenous racist comments with such impunity. And so that was one thing that was getting to me. And the other element was, in October of 2018, the current government of the Coalition Avenir du Québec came into power. They won the election. And the leader of the government, François Legault, even when he was in opposition, basically led almost like a crusade against the concept of systemic racism. He denied its very existence. And even to this very day, he refused to acknowledge the existence of systemic racism. And so here I was involved with this campaign where throughout various points of the campaign, it was very obvious that there were elements clearly that reeked of systemic racism. And this politician, the head of the government now, was denying its very existence. And so I thought it'd be compelling to use the hand-to-hold campaign to expose not only that systemic racism and medical colonialism are very concrete elements of Canadian history, but that they are ongoing to this day. And that idea of medical colonialism is an important part of the analysis that you lay out in the book. In general terms, what is medical colonialism? Medical colonialism is a concept that has existed in the literature 
based on so many other people's work on this issue, I tried to frame it in a way that could be useful moving forward. Basically, thinking of medical colonialism as a culture or ideology that's rooted in systemic anti-Indigenous racism that uses medical practices and policies to establish, maintain, and or advance a genocidal colonial project. And I use genocidal very intentionally. Most of the manuscript was written in the summer of 2019. And you'll recall that in June of 2019 was when the report for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls came out. And that one of the conclusions for that report was that a genocide has occurred in Canada. And there was massive backlash at the time. And it's actually that that compelled me to frame the entire section, which is basically half of the book, on medical colonialism according to the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. And so all of the chapters in that section are divided according to each of the five acts in the UN Convention that basically constitute genocide. And, and within each of those chapters, then, I give examples that were widely practiced and had uh, impacts on many children. And I focus on Indigenous children specifically. So when I'm talking about medical colonialism, it's really talking about it in the context of the medical establishment playing a role in genocide as part of the colonial project here in Canada. Walk listeners through some of the key historical examples of medical colonialism in Canada. If we look at the five acts in the context of the convention, we we'll start with the first act, the act of killing members of the group. And one of the examples I give there, among others, is the intentional spread of smallpox out west in what is now known as British Columbia, that decimated the Indigenous population, many different Indigenous nations at the time, you know, mid-1800s. And what I try to focus on is the role of physicians and the medical establishment throughout. In this particular case, there was a physician who was basically the architect of spreading this. And a lot of my work in this section is based on the work by Tom Swanky, who's done enormous research on this very issue over the last 10 years. But I try to parse out from his work, looking specifically at what the medical actors did. And there are all kinds of other things, too. You know, like at this time, there was actually a vaccine that was given for smallpox. Children in what is now known as British Columbia were supposed to get this vaccine. But when it came to Indigenous communities and Indigenous children specifically, this vaccine was withheld from them. And that obviously resulted in significant death. So that's just one example talking about killing members of the group. If we move on to the second act, we're talking about deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And the example I give here, I draw on the work of Ian Mosby, a historian who wrote a landmark paper a few years ago, and it looked at nutrition research and human biomedical experimentation in indigenous communities and residential schools in the mid-1900s. And one of the examples I focus on is how Indigenous kids in residential schools were forced in a state of malnutrition and starvation. And medical practitioners, doctors, researchers, scientists, nutritionists took advantage of that state to see what effect implementing supplement was going to have on their health. This is just monstrous. It's barbaric. It's cruel. It's criminal. And it's one of the reasons why I clearly consider it genocidal. But again, what many people don't know is that physicians were leading these kinds of initiatives with impunity. The third act is causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Here as well, I give several different examples. But one of them is the example of the Indian hospitals. 
the Indian hospitals played such a huge role in healthcare in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And they came about because healthcare in Canada was essentially an apartheid system. Indigenous people seeking healthcare at mainstream hospitals or settler hospitals were often not allowed to even enter the doors. And so there was this network of Indian hospitals that was created across Canada. And one of its mandates was treating people with TB. Medical historian Maureen Lutz has done a lot of work on this. In many cases, kids were sent to these hospitals for treatment for TB. There were forms of abuse. Kids were not allowed to speak their language. They were punished for doing so, or practice their culture, practice their spirituality. There was cases of sexual abuse. So this was a big deal in terms of, you know, a place that's supposed to be a place for healing was in fact a place of violence. And then Act 4 is imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And here, one of the sources I rely on heavily is Karen Stoke, who published a few years ago a book which looked at the forced sterilizations of Indigenous women and girls. Sterilization acts that were passed in BC and Alberta in the early 20th century had disproportionate impacts on Indigenous women and girls. And then the last act forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And this comes back to the forced transfer of Inuit from Nunavik and Nunavut in the 40s, 50s, and 60s for tuberculosis treatment. This is something that was mandated by the federal government with, at the helm, Dr. Percy Moore, who was a physician himself. There was a ship that would go into the various Inuit communities. Inuit people were forced to board, and everyone went through a series of evaluations and tests. And if people were found to have tuberculosis, they were retained on the ship. In some cases, they weren't even allowed to go back to their homes to get their things. They were just detained there, effectively, on the ships. Sometimes kids were detained without their parents, breastfeeding mothers. In some cases, when they were detained, their babies would be taken from them and given to some other family member or another member of the community to take off the ship. And this practice continued for years, and these people would then be shipped down to southern hospitals. And in many cases, they didn't come home because either they died. In the case of children, some of them were adopted or put into foster care. And so this historical example provided a link to the Hand to Hold campaign in a way, and there's actually a bridge between the Inuit mass evacuation and the medevac non-accompaniment rule, which is that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a journalist, Anne Panasuk of Radio-Canada, brought to light how Indigenous children had been medevaced by plane alone for healthcare and were literally disappeared into the healthcare system, into the medical system. This happened in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and this was not only Inuit. We're talking about the Atikamekw Nation, we're talking about Inu, and we're talking about Anishinaabe as well, among others. And so you can understand that in light of this history, even with the best of intentions in 2017, when you know a, a kid from Nunavik or from Uishi, James Bay Cree Territory, needed to be transferred for emergency medical care by plane and their parent was not allowed to come with them, there's a huge long-standing history of medical violence that had been inflicted on these communities for decades causing multi-generational trauma. And to have neglected that in the medical provision of care is what I argue is an example of medical colonialism. What does medical colonialism look like in 2021? Some of these things, unfortunately, are still with us. You know, forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women and girls. There were cases that came up only a few years ago. And now there's a large class action lawsuit on this issue across the country with cases from most provinces. And there are some cases that are as recent as 2018. 
So this is not old news. And I'm just giving a few examples, but this is obviously much more widespread. You can go back and look at barely 10 years ago, the case of Brian Sinclair, who was an Indigenous man who had medical issues, had an indwelling urinary catheter, was in a wheelchair, and wasn't feeling well, went to a family physician. The family physician sent him to the emergency department. She had given him a letter to go with, which he had. He went to the emergency department, this is in Winnipeg, and was basically put in the waiting room. And the healthcare personnel thought that he was drunk or sleeping it off. And he waited 34 hours until they realized that he was dead. Clearly, that was informed by racism that's rooted in this history of medical colonialism. A few years ago, Kimberly Goad, a Mi'kmaq woman, was living in Montreal. She wasn't feeling well. She went to the emergency department. She didn't happen to have her Medicare card with her. And so they told her at the emergency department that she would have to pay $1,400 up front to access medical care. She obviously did not have that money. Most people don't. And so she went home and she died six weeks later at home. Again, these cases happen all the time. The most recent example that I would give is that of Joyce Eshaquan, which made headlines a few months ago. She died in Joliet Hospital moments after she live-streamed the treatment that she was receiving at the hands of healthcare personnel, where they launched racist epithets at her. She did this live stream to get her family to get her out of the hospital. And instead, she died moments later, and that made headlines across the country, if not across the world. But these are the examples that just keep coming up over and over again. These are kind of tip of the iceberg examples because they're the ones that make it to the media. But if you ask Indigenous people across all of different kinds of communities across the country, everyone seems to have an experience either directly or through a family member of having been treated holistically at the hands of the healthcare system. And so it's clearly an ongoing issue. In the face of the persistence of medical colonialism, what kinds of resistance are happening in communities and within healthcare contexts? In the healthcare context, there have been a lot of Indigenous people who have been pushing these issues for years, and now finally it seems like they're getting some space to be able to implement the demands that they've been making for ages. There's this whole idea of decolonizing healthcare. When I talk about this in the book, I suggest that, you know, a decolonizing approach means that Indigenous peoples are self-determining with respect to their health and healing systems, including to what extent they engage with the dominant medical paradigm. And I think that's important because the dominant medical paradigm is rooted in a colonial history, in colonial science. And in order for things to change meaningfully in healthcare, that paradigm, those of us who work in that system, have to be proactive and aggressive, I would say, in pushing back against many colonial practices, but also seeking to learn to understand how to incorporate or work with healing systems out of Indigenous knowledge and culture. One of the other points I highlight in the book is that so much of the health inequalities, the health injustices we see are a result of what can be defined as the structural determinants of health. So the structural drivers that inform our society, some of those that I mention in the book include colonialism, include systemic racism, include capitalism. And until we recognize that reality and the effect of those policies and legislation that exists in Canada as a settler colonial nation state, things are not going to change. That's why I intentionally try to highlight the importance of supporting Indigenous resurgence movements, land-backed movements, land defense Because ultimately, the ideal scenario is obviously for Indigenous communities to have and to be able to fully enjoy and actualize autonomy and self-determination and then decide to what extent they want to engage with Western medicine. 
What kinds of concrete things would you like to see more medical practitioners and medical educators doing to oppose medical colonialism in the coming years? One of them definitely is listening, understanding what Indigenous communities have been and are saying for years, if not decades, in fact. That's pivotal. The other element is having an emphasis in medical education and continuing medical education on the reality of medical colonialism. When I've been doing speaking events in the medical world, in the healthcare world, I'm kind of flabbergasted to realize how many people don't know about so many of these issues who are working in healthcare. That history is not taught, but that history is incredibly important because whether we're talking about, you know, what happened to Brian Sinclair, what happened to Kimberly Goa, to Joyce Eshaquan, why the non-accompaniment rule that the Hand to Hold campaign put an end to, why that persisted for so long, all of these things happen because there's a medical culture that allowed them and allows them to happen. And so part of confronting that medical culture means for us to understand when we come into a room and we see an Indigenous patient or family or child, that we realize the baggage that we are coming in with, because it's actually that that's an issue in terms of impacting on effective, dignified, just, Healthcare. And unless we come to terms with our own history as medical practitioners, as nurses, as healthcare providers, that relationship that's inherently rooted in this colonial power dynamic is going to be very difficult to restructure. And so that has to change, that has to be implemented across the board in medical education from early on. This should be part of the curriculum just as much as anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, pathology is in medical school, for example. What are your personal plans in terms of continuing to live your commitments to social justice and to anti-colonial practice in medical contexts? For now, a lot of the work is actually tied to this. I've been pleasantly surprised, I guess, at the reception that the book has received. There have been a lot of interest in the healthcare field itself. So I think that's hopeful in a certain sense that there is finally this change that's come about. And that I should mention, and I, I want to make that clear, obviously has come about because of longstanding years, decades of Indigenous-led self-determination movements. I make that very clear, even when I'm talking about the campaign. You know, if this campaign would have been led exactly the same way 15 years ago, the results would not have been the same, because I feel that the political terrain has shifted over the last 15 or 20 years, if not 30 years, to the point where, you know, having Indigenous children being sent alone for medical care now is just unfathomable. Whereas I feel like 15 years ago, that was still probably considered acceptable. And the only reason that changed is if we go back even to 1990s, you know, like the Oka crisis or the siege of Kansasage, and all the resistance that's happened since then has really played a significant role in a massive political terrain shift. And so I guess my role in the next few months, at the very least, maybe years, I see as acting in solidarity with work that Indigenous communities have been doing for years and basically trying to push back against the medical establishment and create space or create more space so that Indigenous-led initiatives for health justice can thrive in the weeks, months and years to come. I think one of the last things I would leave it at is the line that I use a few times in the book, which is basically inequalities in healthcare follow the fault lines of societal injustices. And I hope one of the takeaway points from the book for people is going to be that unless we confront and put an end to those societal injustices, inequalities in healthcare will persist. If we want that to end, then we really have to push hard to make sure that we put an end to societal injustices more broadly. 
You have been listening to my interview with Dr. Samir Shaheen Hussein. To learn more about his new book, Fighting for a Hand to Hold, Confronting Medical Colonialism Against Indigenous Children in Canada, search for it on the website of McGill-Queen's University Press. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.